Good afternoon, KCB neighbors. Here it is, Saturday. No, it's Sunday, uh, May sixth. A dreary, cold, drippy day, and our planned gathering at Gay's house has to be postponed due to COVID, which has reared it reared its head again. And thank you, Matt, for for taking the test and letting us know so that we can all stay safe. And uh, when Gay was planning this party, I said that I had to leave on the 10th because I have a storytelling performance on the 11th in uh, in the Chicago area. So he, she suggested that when we we were to get together this Sunday that I practice my story, which was a very generous offer to subject you to a practice run. But I certainly appreciated the opportunity to have a, a forgiving and appreciated audience. And since there's really nothing going on this afternoon, I thought I'd send you this uh, audio file uh, to listen to the story if you want. Not much else to do today. And the format of this storytelling is that you need to get up uh, and tell your story without any notes. You just have to kind of wing it. So normally I practice with a script and, and try to find the balance of, of uh, making it sound fresh and conversational, but not too over-rehearsed, but I do have this lingering fear that I get up there and, and all of a sudden I realize I've like forgotten four, four or five paragraphs and I'm done well ahead of time. But anyway, I'm going to try and do this story according to those rules. This is uh, sort of off the top of my head and and uh, you'll get a sense of, of uh, what the storytelling is all about. So uh, here we go. So my story starts uh, in 1962, way back when, when I was on a skiing trip in Utah and, and happened to overlap with the uh, family of Robert McNamara, who were out there skiing. And at the time, I knew that he, he was uh, our Secretary of Defense protecting us from the communists. But frankly, the word, the word secretary was confusing to me because in my world, a secretary was women's work and, and a temp job at that. I had the example of my mother, who when she graduated from college, uh, worked as a, a secretary, but just for that year until she got married, and then uh, then she became a homemaker, as so many other 1950s uh, housewives uh, before her and after her. And her skills as a secretary, which were typing like the wind, organizing files, going back and forth in, into her boss's office with her high heels clicking on the floor, well, they really didn't seem transferable to the world, uh, to the role of someone who's going to protect us from communists. But I knew that my parents, uh, lifelong um, Republicans and probably dismayed at the election of John Kennedy, really respected Robert McNamara and thought he was the man for the job. About two years earlier, before the ski trip, we were in the midst of the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, and uh, our school had started having bomb drills um, for us, and when the alarm sounded, we'd have to run in from wherever we were. We could have been in the bathroom, the cafeteria, out on the uh, at recess, but you had to run in and, and cower with your hands over your heads underneath your wooden desk. Now, it didn't take a genius to figure out that this wooden desk would offer very minimal protection. And then there was the issue of radiation, this sort of silent drift of particles that could sear your lungs and blister your skin. But, you know, we went ahead and did this. And, and then I recall that um, our next door neighbors uh, were building a bomb shelter. I remember this big, huge pipe coming out of their uh, backyard, out of, the, out of their lawn, which was designed to filter the air. 
And so when I asked my parents, you know, what are we going to do about this? My mother confided in me that the neighbors had, had said that if, if need be, they, we could go over and share their bomb shelter with them. But then she also said, if you think I'm going to bunk in with those people, you've got another thing coming. So then I asked my father what we were going to do. And I thought at least maybe we could have some sort of bomb drills in our house and hide under our dining room table. But all he said was, well, we'll see when the time comes. So that was that. But then... After a while, the, the whole issue seemed to go away. We stopped doing bomb drills at school, and we all felt safe again. But then it was another two years, and those crazy commies were acting up again, this time in, in the far off, uh, around the world, halfway around the world, uh, Vietnam. And I remember seeing uh, Robert McNamara on uh, TV several times on the news, and he really looked like he fit the part of, of uh, controlling communism. He was a very stern man, impeccably dressed with his hair slicked back and, and not a hair out of place in these thin wire rim glasses. And he talked with a I mean it voice. Um, it really gave you some confidence. And he would pull down uh, a picture, a map of, of Vietnam, which um, in those days they didn't have fancy audio visuals, so he was, it was like he's pulling down a shade, and there was a, a outline in Vietnam, and he would point, he had just like this little wooden pointer with a black tip, and he would point to the, the line across uh, Vietnam, the demilitarized zone, and, and that was going to be where we were going to stop the communists. And so there we were now out skiing, and there was an air of excitement that went through the whole ski area because everyone knew that Rob, Robert McNamara was out there taking a vacation with his family. And I thought, well, what the hell? Isn't protecting us from communism like a 24-7 job? Who's back in Washington manning the, the, the phone? What are we going to do with him out here? And I was on the ski slopes with the ski school, and the, the ski instructor sort of um, shunted us aside to the side of the hill to let Robert McNamara ski by sort of un, unperturbed. And he skied right by me, and I saw him. And he and it, actually he was wearing these baggy ski pants that were really not in in line with the, the style of that time, which were those tight, stretched ski pants. And, and as he skied by me, I could hear the flapping of this of his pants and he he wasn't really a very good skier i mean i think i was a better skier than than, than he was and then of course i looked at his hair I, I think i was a little obsessed with his hair because not one follicle fluttered in the in the wind and then off he went and and he was followed by a bunch of kids and and basically he looked like he was a a man who was enjoying a vacation with his kids and i thought how can this be how can this our protector, our final line against communism, how can he take time off and, and enjoy his family? The only example I had was my father, who was a hardworking salesman um, in the Chicago area who spent a lot, of time, a lot of time commuting in his car. And I asked him one day, I said, Dad, what do you, what do you think about in the car? What do you do when you're doing all those hours commuting? And he said, well, on the way in, I think about my job, and on the way out, on the way home, I think about my family. And I thought, well, wait a minute, is this what McNamara thinks about? Then when he's driving into work, he thinks about 
how many bombs do I need? How many fresh bodies do I need to send off to the far-off sweltering jungles of Vietnam? Uh, who am I going to pluck from obscurity to s send over there? And then when he gets home, does he just roughhouse with his kids? Does he have them sit in his lap and tell them stories? Does he help with the dinner? How, how could this be? How could he be an average dad? When we got to the bottom of the hill, we got there and we had to wait in line to get the chairlift up. And, and these were the days before the speedy uh, chairlifts that they have now. And so we had to wait in line, maybe 20 minutes. And then, then McNamara and his group just whooshed in in front of us and they cut in line. And I was absolutely outraged. You know, I grew up in, a, in an affluent suburb north of Chicago. And I think you can imagine that I had a very limited sense of social injustice. My only transferable experience was in the cafeteria line in grade school. There were no cuts, period. It didn't matter if you were the school brain with your name emblazoned at the top of the honor roll, or if you were the stud player on the football team. There were just no cuts. I was shocked by the McNamara's casual disregard for this inviolate rule. It was un-American and equally shocked that no one dare, dared yell, no cuts. No one stepped up to do the obvious, to jostle him back into line. There were no accusatory stares, no humiliation. No one said, hey, McNamara, get to the back of the line like everyone else. He suffered no consequences. One day, the entire ski school gathered in the cafeteria for lunch. I knew who the McNamara kids were by then. I had seen them cutting in line with their father. They saved a place at the lunch table with their hats and gloves, and this was marginally acceptable. But when they went up to get their food, they did it again. Shepherded by the ski school instructor, they cut to the head of the cafeteria line. No one rose up to challenge them. Someone had to make the family pay, and I guess it would have to be me. And it was too late to say no cuts. They'd already come back to the table with their food. What could I do? And then I thought, I think I have a weapon. A couple of years before, my parents had told me a secret, and they said, you cannot tell anybody else's secret, particularly your younger brothers. Now, here's the thing about a secret. It is wonderful to be told a secret, to be that trusted person, to carry the secret, to be the insider. You're one of the elite that knows something that nobody else does. But at the same time, What's the point of being an insider if no one else knows it? So you have to tell that secret. And this particular secret was just eating away at my soul. It was like a bright, shining lie. And I had to tell someone. And it couldn't be my siblings, because then my parents would find out that I'd betrayed their trust. But I could tell someone peripheral, someone with no consequences. So I turned to those McNamara kids, and I blurted it out. I said, you know what, kids? Your father has been lying to you. Your mother has been lying to you. Guess what? I'm going to tell you the truth. There's no such thing as Santa Claus. The eyes of the youngest daughter, she was probably about five or six at the time, widened. She looked at me in bereaved astonishment. A pendulous drop of cocoa hung from her trembling lip. Her other older brother said, Hey, what'd you do that for? She's just a kid. My moment of vindictive triumph was brief. I fell into a pit of remorse.
unable to explain that I was retaliating for the bigger sin of cutting in line. Had I just sucked the life out of Christmas for this little kid? Maybe it was some tender moment that she shared with her father that she sat on his lap while he read the night before Christmas, and they put out carrots for Rudolph, hung the stockings with care. Had I ruined it for her? And then I thought, oh my goodness, these aren't peripheral people. These kids could go back and tell their father, and their father might seek retribution on me. I imagined his eyes burning fiercely behind those rimless glasses, a small smile dancing on his lip, a smile of punishment rather than forgiveness. This was the most powerful man in the world. If he could retaliate against communists, drop a bomb with a clear conscience, what could he do to me? I envisioned a clenched and pumping fist. How could you have done that? You've stolen their childhood, ruined their lives. They'll never be the same. How could you have made such a destructive decision? I will never forgive you. Feared for my life. A sniveling, whimpering apology would not be enough. I was caught in the tyranny of the lie. And then I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute, I should stand up for myself. What I did wasn't really wrong, was it? I could speak up for equality. I could say I wanted to protect children from the lies perpetuated by authority figures, to provide them with my wisdom, let them know that they could question everything, say that blind loyalty to authority should always be tempered with skepticism that I was doing something that was entirely American. This was why we were fighting a war in Vietnam, wasn't it? I was speaking truth to power. There is no such thing as Santa Claus. Okay, let's face it. This noble line of thought never crossed my unsophisticated sixth grade mind. The truth was, I was jealous of those kids. I would have liked to be the one who could cut in line. For the rest of the trip, I laid low, scuttled about eight in the dark corners of the cafeteria. I was relieved to get out of town and return home. I almost knelt and kissed the driveway in gratitude for being back in a safe and nurturing environment. That was about 60 years ago. And I wonder if those McNamara kids have any recollection of the incident that has been seared into my memory. Probably not. What would I say to them now, after all these years? The window for an apology is far gone. However, I would tell them what I learned. I learned that it is so easy to be careless with people. And I learned that it is just as easy to be seduced by an institutionalized lie. And I learned that speaking truth to power, well, that's a tricky bitch.